Amen. Thanks, wifey. Um, pr praise God. Good to see all of you uh, here, and, and some, uh, even from last night, who were, th were with us last night as we were closing up the place, vacuuming and, and tearing down uh, decorations from our uh, Christmas foray that we've done the last couple years. Um, and so uh, some of us have, have even received our Christmas gift. Uh, for me, it was the Cubs. My hometown team went in the World Series. I got it early this year. I got it in October. Others of you may be getting it a little bit uh, later. Uh, but uh, either way, it's a, a pleasure uh, for, for me to be here with you and uh, have both of my boys uh, in town at home, which doesn't happen as, as often as it used to, not too long ago. Uh, today, we are going to uh, finish our Christmas series that we entitled uh, The Songs of the Messiah. And you will recall that we heard the songs of Mary uh, praising God as she, as she found out that, uh, that God had chosen her, a uh, peasant uh, woman of, of no repute, little repute in Israel, to be uh, the mother of the Messiah, of Elizabeth, who found out in her old age that she would have a son, and not just any son, but a great son that would proclaim the coming of the Savior. Of, of Zachariah, who uh, praised God that, uh, that God would uh, give this old priest the great opportunity to be the father of the forerunner of Christ. And this, this morning we're going to hear the, um, the song of Simeon, uh, a prophet who looked forward to the coming of Jesus. Simeon's song is found in Luke 2, 25 through 35. And, um, I want to read that. I want to start with this again, since this will be the core passage for my message. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Just note in this passage, uh, three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in reference to Simeon. This is to tell us that this whole scene has God's hand upon it, that he's the architect and he's the author. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David who would sit on David's throne forever. Moved by the Spirit, third reference to the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, um, that is circumcision on the eighth day. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
And so this morning, I want you to recognize that it's Jesus' destiny is to be a disruption to the ordinary life. Now, let's look at the key characters in the story for evidence of this. You have Mary, and she is betrothed. She is engaged to her husband, and after some time uh, has passed, um, they're going to marry, and they're going to consummate their marriage, and uh, an angel appears to her and says, listen up, blessed one, you are chosen to carry the child, the, the, the Messiah. And she says, I think this is good news. <laughs> I think this is good news. Okay. Uh, but, but she doesn't ask one important question. She says, yes, I'll do it. But she doesn't ask one important question. Who's going to tell my, my husband to be, right? Who's going to tell? Uh, in Matthew, the story is recorded shortly thereafter that an angel appears to Matthew and says to him, and Matthew is like, okay, his, his uh, betrothed, his engage, the woman he's engaged to turns up pregnant. And he's like, you know, she's cheating on me already? I mean, come on. So he's a good man and kind, and he could have actually had her stoned, but he, he decides he's going to put her away quietly, and the, the, the angel speaks to him and say, no, this is done by the Holy Spirit. You are to name this son Jesus. He is God's son, and he's going to save his people from their sins. So you have these two people, they have these perfect wedding plans, totally disrupted. And then what about his earliest disciples? Um, Peter and his brother Andrew, they're in their boats going uh, about their fishing business, which was their father's business, right? So they they had a long history of fishing for a living, right? And what what Jesus says to them, he says, uh, leave your boats and I will make you fishers of men. And this is how it is with Jesus. He's not interested in us having comfortable lives. When he shows up on the scene, there's a change in the status quo. Jesus' destiny is to be a disruptor who requires us to make a decision. Today we're going to look at three ways in which Jesus disrupts our ordinary lives. The first is that Jesus is a disruptor that requires us to make a decision regarding his offer of salvation. The decision about Jesus, what is it going to be, yes or no? Uh, 2016 is this decision 2016, right? On November 8th, you could vote for one candidate or not vote. But what was certain to happen is that there was going to be a new president that was going to be elected. You had the opportunity, but whether you cast your vote or not, the nation was going to choose its next president. And the thing with Jesus is that God has appointed him to be the savior of the whole world. And the way the scripture says this, he doesn't like sneak onto the scene. Oftentimes, we, I think we have this conception of Jesus that he's kind of a, a mild and meek uh, uh, baby in a manger. But the truth about Jesus is his existence was proclaimed for the whole world. The scripture says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. He says, he, he snuck in uh, the back room. He says, no. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation, which, which you have prepared in the sight of the whole world. And so for 2,000 years, 
The church has been proclaiming that Christ is, has born. It started with the angels and went to the shepherds and then to the apostles and then to the prophets and Christians who have received this message have been proclaiming it and even to this day in the remotest areas of the world. Christians are seeking to share that Jesus is born, that salvation has come to all men. Jesus, the news is a disruption. And the question really is, you know, what is the core message? And here's the core message. Zechariah talked about it in relation to his son, John. He says this, he says, and you, my child, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You'll be a prophet of, of the Lord Jesus, for you will be, go before Jesus to prepare the way for him, to give his people this critical message. The knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. And so John goes and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the humble would recognize that before God they were sinners and would repent and accept Jesus as Lord. That is our core message. Now what are we gonna do with that message? Because when someone turns away from the gracious offer of God, it's usually to some form of self-sufficiency. There is a story. In 1923, a meeting took place in the Edgewater Beach Hotel. And attending this meeting were nine of the most powerful men of the times, financiers and politicians. There was the president of America's largest steel company, the president of America's largest utility company, the president of America's largest gas company, the president of New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the nation's greatest wheat speculator, the, the, the nation's greatest bear, that is, uh, someone who invests in stocks and doesn't think the market is gonna go well, bear and speculator on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and a member of President Hardin's cabinet. It was said that they, they came together to celebrate their success and to plan their future dominance. These were the captains of their respective industries and some of the most important men of their era. But how did things turn out for these, 20, for these, for these nine men 25 years later? So a, uh, a newspaper, a reporter looked into this 25 years later, and here's what happened to these nine men. The president of the largest steel company, Charles Schwab, died a bankrupt man. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died penniless. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, suffered a mental breakdown and ended up in a hospital for the, uh, for the insane. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from prison. The bank president, Leon Fraser, had taken his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died penniless. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Kruger, also had taken his life. And the member of the President Hardin's cabinet, Albert Fall, had just been given a pardon from prison so that he could die at home. And as for the Wall Street investor, Jesse Lauritsen, Livermore, perhaps maybe the most... Uh, surprising or, or tragic end of all. A week after Thanksgiving in 1940, Jesse walked into the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York. He had two drinks at the bar while scribbling something in his notebook. 
then proceeded to the cloakroom where he sat on a stool and shot himself in the head. He was 62, and he left behind $5 million down from a $100 million fortune that he had in 1923. And the note he had scribbled was this. My dear Nina, speaking to his wife, can't help it, things have been bad with me. I am tired of fighting. Can't carry on any longer. This is the only way out. I am unworthy of your love. I am a failure. I am truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Love, Lori. So humans who reject Christ as their ultimate joy in pursuit of some other pleasure, find that these things do not satisfy. Reflecting on this tendency, the great Christian thinker and English professor C.S. Lewis said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but far too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and, and prosperity when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And so, when we reject Christ, we find ourselves mentally um, out of touch with God. That there's, a, there's a focus on ourselves and not on others. We find ourselves emotionally out of touch. We find our hearts given to, to pleasures and pursuits and not to eternal things. Like, like Christ, like salvation, like, like, like loving others and seeking our joy in the good of others. Our hearts are directed towards uh, material things. And spiritually, we find ourselves out of fellowship with God, not because God doesn't desire fellowship, not because he doesn't make a gracious, gracious offer, but because we reject it. And then we come to the ends of our lives like these nine men, desperate, recognizing that they have invested their whole lives in what they thought was, was, was good and worthwhile and found to be meaningless. This child Jesus is designed to cause the falling of the proud, the falling of those unable to see what is good in, in, in this world. So there's a decision about Jesus. What happens when you say yes? And I wish I could say to, uh, to you that when you say yes to Jesus, that your life will be pain-free and perfect. But instead, what you find in Jesus and what you find in this passage is that Mary, who embraced God's um, call on her life, the prophet says that a sword will touch her life as well. And so indeed, she watches her son be crucified on the cross. And so with us, for Christians, we experience a pain 
We, we experience a persecution that, that is a suffering for being with Christ and not in the world. And we also experience a sickness, and we also experience accidents, but we experience all of these things in Christ, and we experience all of these things in fellowship with others. Over this past eight weeks, sometimes Christmas for a pastor is not the cheeriest of times. So I've been on staff here for three and a half years, and it has, uh, Christmas can be really difficult for the people of God. This year, we had a young couple who lost both of their parents in a car accident. Another young couple uh, was expecting a child after 20 months of pregnancy and lost their child. So during this Advent season of waiting for Jesus and preparing, these kinds of tragedies come to us in Christ. We don't escape pain, but what we have is the fellowship of each other. And so in these two instances, the Christians ran out and brought meals and comfort to these, to these Christians to show that God loves them through their difficulties. Because what God does with our pain is he shows us that we, don't, that we can't rely on him in life. He shows that through difficulties and pains, we can rely on Christ. And then there are struggles. I think of the struggle of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. His struggle was this. He, he wanted to seek happiness in taking advantage of others. Uh, he was engaged to a young woman named Belle. This is a Charles Dickens story from 1843. And he, he is engaged to a lovely one, young woman. But this woman find out, found out, she, she finally gave up on him, and she decided that she would, he would never love her as much as he loved his money. And he had a clerk, a guy named Bob Cratchit. And Bob Cratchit was overworked and underpaid. In fact, he had to ask Scrooge for the, the, the custom of the time was to have a paid vacation on Christmas. And, and Scrooge was like, bah humbug, just come to work. And, and out, of, out of sheer frustration, he just gave him the time off. And uh, you, you, some of you know the story. Angels appear to him and show him what his life will be if he continues on this, this, this path, this fruitless path. And he comes to himself and he recognizes that it is better to find joy in blessing others than trying to take advantage of others. There's this struggle that every Christian has, a, a struggle against self-serving towards loving others and finding our joy in others. I think that's one of the things that Christmas shows parents, especially parents of young kids, especially you parents that have been up all night doing all kinds of things, preparing for Christmas. And you get up weary in the mornings, soaking down coffee so that you can see the joy in the eyes of your children. You don't do it for yourself. If it was for you, you'd just sleep in. That would be joy enough for Christmas. But for your children, you get up because you want to experience, you want to see the appreciation on their, on their faces, this look of wonder in their faces. So you sacrifice. And so we have this lifelong struggle against ourselves, learning how to experience joy in serving others. And then lastly, there is this purpose that we find. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
But John Piper has, has explored this carefully, and I agree with him. He says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That the only way, the best motivation for faithful Christian life is the love, the pure love of God. To see that loving God is not duty, but is delight. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalms 37, verse 3 and 4. So I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus forever. That's the, that's the joy. That is the purpose of my life. The purpose of my life, the purpose of every Christian's life is to learn how to rejoice in Jesus right now, whatever your circumstances are, to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' destiny is to be a disruptor who requires us to make a decision, first about salvation, and second, he's a, he is a disruptor that requires us to make a decision about race and culture. Here's what the scripture says. Luke 2, 30 through 32, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. What Jesus has done when he, in his coming is he has taken a people who previously had no conception of him and he has showed them the way to salvation. And so up until this time, the Jews had the law and the prophets and, and, and a knowledge that they were in the line of God, but the Gentiles not so much. But in Jesus' coming, what he does is he makes the gospel available to every person. He brings the gospel to every person. And so we recognize that salvation is by faith through repentance, that, that, there, is, that there is power in the word of God. And, and we allow, the, uh, we, we accept Christ, the spirit comes into our lives and it changes the way that we go about our lives. And we are able to see gloriousness in the life of Christ. And the, Jesus is also the glory of Israel. This child in Simeon's arms, as he gives his blessing, and that is the ancient of days. So the child in his hands is the, the eternal God. The he always was God. The child in his hands was the future ruler of the world. And the child in his hands was the creator and king. What child is this? God's being is so enormous and so magnificent. He is the glory of Israel, but he's even greater than that. He is the glory of all mankind. You see, it was Jesus' master plan that Jews and non-Jews, all people, would be united in him. And 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah had spoke of this. And now the Lord says, he who formed me, Christ speaking of himself, in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. This again is the Messiah speaking of the Father. And my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing, the Father says, for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles 
that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so Simeon is repeating to us this prophecy from Isaiah. And Paul shows us in exactly how Jesus does this. Paul says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the atoning blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and non-Jews, one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in, him, in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This cross is much more powerful than we ever imagined. This cross, the Word of God, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit was intended to bring the races together, not just Jews and Gentiles, and that was a major divide, still is to this day, but also blacks and Asians, Latinos, and people from every walk of life, that this Jesus Christ in himself was to be the unifying force of all mankind. And it was to do a powerful thing. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And so what God does is he, he unites us not by teaching us more tolerance, not by teaching us to love each other in, in, in our own strength, if we would just apply ourselves, All I am saying is give peace a chance, not by such foolishness, but by bringing people together in him, by forgiving all of our sins, by putting in us a love for the word, by putting in us his Holy Spirit, by making us, restoring the image of God in us. That's his plan to bring the races together. And that is the fellowship that we now have in the church. But my question is, why is it that we don't see that? Why is it in the church today that we don't see the unity that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross 2,000 years ago? Why such division? And you say, Lloyd, well, what division? Well, this kind of division. We just came off uh, an election. And, and here's what the post-election data shows. It shows that 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And we don't have good data on black and Asian and Latino uh, evangelicals. The best data we have is just on their, their by race. And it says that 88% of blacks voted for Clinton. It says 65% of Latinos voted for Clinton. It says 65% of Asians voted for Clinton. And if you just look at the data, at least politically, you have to at least concede that there isn't the kind of unity that Christ accomplished at least in that score. And all the pundits say, and I can attest to this, that this was the most divisive election in, in American history. I go back, my first vote was at the Carter election. And I can go from Carter to Reagan, to the first Bush, to Clinton, and I can tell you that none of the elections were near as divisive, divisive racially and culturally as this particular one. And so here we are 
in the church and we're divided, but there is hope and the hope is in Jesus Christ. There is this trend going on in America where about 15 years ago, 8% of the churches had 80% or less of one particular culture, 80%. And so now that number is 16%. So 16% of churches have at least 20% people of a different ethnicity. So this would be a a black church that has 75% black and 25% white. And this trend is increasing in America. And it's it's a good trend. And I ask myself this question, What if this was a reality in the local church? Here, that is the body of Christ. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. So all racial barriers, all class barriers, all laid aside. But Christ is in all, is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, that living together, we would display the fruit of the Spirit. Compare this list to Galatians chapter six. The fruit of the Spirit, living together. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance uh, against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And what I'm suggesting to you is this is what the local church ought to look like. This is what the local church ought to look like in cities, when blacks, Latinos, and Asians live in the same community, live in the same, work in the same places, go to the same schools, they ought not be what Martin Luther King once said in 1963 in an interview that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in Christian America. That ought not be. And when blacks and Asians and Latinos will align themselves under white pastors and when whites will learn to align themselves under black senior pastors and Latino and Asian pastors and when we learn how to live out the fruit of the Spirit together, when we live in the same communities, then we will see what Jesus accomplished on the cross actually lived out in our communities and when there is racial divisiveness like there has been the last year, we will have a word to say about it. We will be living proof that that doesn't exist in Jesus Christ. Somebody talk back with me. And so there is hope and there is a future and it is already accomplished in Jesus Christ. So Jesus' destiny is to be a disruptor who requires us to make a decision about salvation. He requires us to make a decision about race and culture, and he requires us to make a decision about how we deal with his arrival. Um, Christians, we enjoy the Christmas season, but for us, when when we're thinking right, when our perspective is right, It's not about the gifts we may or may not exchange. It's not about the vacation. In fact, after I finish preaching, I'm going on two weeks vacation. I'm ready for a break. (laughs) But Christmas isn't about my vacation. 
right? It's not about my, my gifts. It's, it's not about the, the seasonal festivities, but it is about the joy that we find in our salvation. Uh, every Tuesday, the staff at High Point Church prays, and Pastor Nick will lead us through a prayer, and he will ask us questions like, what is God doing in your life? And this week, I paid attention as one staff member told me. He said, this Christmas, I have spent more time with the Lord. My fellowship in him is greater. Uh, last year, uh, <laughs> our staff was really hairy during Christmas. Almost none of us could have said that. That, could, that wasn't in our testimony. We were busy and harried and so forth. But this Christmas, I believe most all of us had our, our priorities straight. And we were focusing on the Lord. And I can tell you three things. I said, uh, I, I experienced this blessedness. Three things. I, I experienced a greater fellowship with God because I spent the time in the morning praying through the scriptures, doing the Psalms. I even did it this morning. Look at Psalm uh, 25 and praying these things for myself. And in the praying, God gave me a fresh insight in his word. And in the, the going to scripture, first and foremost, this morning at four o'clock in the morning for me, and in the getting of fresh insights, some of which I'm trying to preach to you today, there was a quiet praise. The kind of praise of God that nobody hears but you and Jesus. And I want to tell you that that's what the Christmas season is about. That's what the 40 days are about. A closer fellowship with God, fresh insight into his word, and a quiet praise. And when that overwhelms your soul, then you will be able to sing with us, oh, come, let us adore him. Come on up. Lord Jesus, you are a disruptor. You don't want us to go through the same old Christmas season of nice gifts and extra vacation time and, and uh, every kiss begins with K kind of stuff. <laughs> but Lord, you want us to explore again the joy of our salvation. You want us to delight in our private world in the love of God. That's my prayer for the Christians. And my prayer for those who are not Christian is that they will join in on the party, that they will join in on the delight it is to adore and to serve the one who gave their life, who came not to the first time, not to rule, but to give his life for all of us and to purchase redemption for us. Oh, come, let us adore this great king.